like haunts? Yes. Do you like immersive theater? Yes. Do you like escape rooms? Yes. What's the safe word? My haunt life. Hello and welcome to the My Haunt Life podcast. I'm Mike. And I'm Russell. And Russell, this is going to be a fun episode. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> and I say that with all the sarcasm uh, because we uh, are talking about all the fringe shows that you saw Yes, <laughs> because I didn't see any. Well, you were smart enough to front load your schedule. Yes. And in the last, in the first couple of weeks of Fringe, you managed to get everything done that you were really had your heart set on seeing, right? Yeah. And plus, then I had plans and like I went to see uh, Overwatch League at the brand new Blizzard Arena um, and, you know, other things like that, like mowing my lawn, you know, fun, exciting <laughs> things like that. Well, uh, Mike, 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 I was a fool. Um, I decided. Uh, last year, I had so much fun overdoing Fringe Fest <laughs> that I decided to try to top myself this year. And everything, I tried to fit in as many shows as I could. And granted, there were almost 400 shows in this year's Hollywood Fringe Festival. And uh, I saw 46 shows. Jeez, man, you're a Fringe junkie. Oh, wait, in 25 days. No, and I legit, I mean, you're a junkie because the other day you were hitting me up. You're like, I have nothing going on. And you started like scratching yourself and like shaking. It's like, I need to fit more in today. Um, yeah, that's what she said. Uh, so what? Nothing? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, I really, really packed the last couple of weekends. Um, I, I had some plans change and I actually had more time than I originally thought I would. So I kept like trying to see more and more shows that people kept recommending to me. And, and for the most part, I had a blast. Um, so yeah, this is going to be a little bit Russell heavy. Uh, and no, then... what do you mean a little bit? It's only going to be you. <laughs> no, no. There's a couple of conversations. I have questions for you. About. Uh, I'm going to just wake me up, I guess, when that uh, happens. Thanks. So, all right, well, l- let's just, uh, just just jump in there was a new version of romeo and juliet at this year's fringe festival and i was really curious to see it because i knew that they were doing some interesting things with the production and mike is it weird yes right, you, thank you uh you know the story of romeo and juliet yes tragedy young love gone awry everybody dies it it's gonna be weird and but... the the new movie well the newer movie yes is referenced in the twice video <laughs> for what is love twice you mean the k-pop group yes <laughs> of course i do uh, and for... they also just covered michael jackson or jackson five i mean uh jackson five for yes. their japanese album so yes <laughs> and blackpink just released the song that's like gonna be huge it's gonna it's gonna be huge like people are gonna hear about blackpink because they're going to hit you with that did it did it do. Hit you with that do do do. do. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hit you with that do do do. So, and by the way, beautiful freaking video for it. Yeah. Like when you send me the link for the video, it's it's beautifully shot. It's, and it it's... had like I don't know how many views it has now, but like within like 3 days it had over 60 million views on YouTube. Holy crap. Yeah. Oh. All right. Sorry. Okay. Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. Uh, tragedy, death, despair. Uh, everybody at the end of it is just just wrecked. Uh, I had so much fun at this show. 
I really did. And I know it sounds weird, like saying that about a tragedy, but the cool thing about this version of Romeo and Juliet, uh, which was directed by a gentleman named Tim Venable, uh, they did some really interesting things, Mike. First of all, they did some gender swapping of the supporting characters. So Mercutio was female. Friar Lawrence was female. They took Juliet's nurse and they turned that into this sort of hyperactive male character. So all of the frenetic energy that is normally in that character actually becomes this weird... Um, he almost became like a secondary father figure to Juliet because he was so doting on her and so protective of her. And if you turn that character around the way they did in this show, it makes it so much more like a... Because Juliet's father is a jerk. Come on. I mean, forced marriage, all that good jazz. So that all of that genre swapping really added to the production and made those characters so much more interesting. And the the weird thing it did for me, Mike, is... Made you want to switch genders? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm happily confused as I am. So... Uh, but like Friar Lawrence, if she's female, uh, all of the, cause you know, that's the character who does all of the plotting and the planning and the, I'll get some poison and we got this going on. And then, you know, Romeo will meet you even though he's banished and, and all that. Well, if that's a female character, it, it kind of comes off in this weirdly more tragic way because it's a woman fighting for true love rather than just a helpful religious father figure trying to help this young couple out who they're there it's an unfair situation just because of their names they're not allowed to associate with each other it, it it's a really unfortunate social stigma that they're fighting against but if you turn that character into a woman it becomes more of a motherly thing where she's fighting for true love and so the, the outcome is even more tragic and the same thing with mercutio mercutio is the really playful character and has all of the you know the conjuring lines where i'll conjure romeo and and that really famous scene and so if you turn mercutio into a woman she becomes this badass who holds her own in fight sequences and then it adds this weird sexual tension between her and Romeo. And Romeo is already confused because he was promised to Rosalind. By the way, Romeo, he's so fickle. It's just... <laughs> I mean, come on. He's in love with Rosalind and then the next day after one meeting, he literally wants to marry Juliet. I mean, ugh. So he's an impetuous young boy. Uh, so, but if you put Mercutio as a woman and then add her into the sword fights, like that adds this weird sexual tension. And at one point, they actually shared a kiss that was so, like, sexy and and off limits because of who sh who Mercutio is in the show. So. Uh, it was it was really really interesting. I actually had a blast watching this unfold. And even though you know where the story goes, they did some really interesting choices with this, including the the party scene. They used you know modern dance music for the party scene, which added a lot of energy to it. Which if you energize that original meeting between Romeo and Juliet, it makes it much more youthful and fun. Because I've seen that thing staged so over the top, love at first sight, romantic. And this felt more real because you're just like, oh, my God, you're hot. You know, it's like that kind of vibe to it. And yet totally sincere at the same time. Uh, they also did a couple of things that were, were didn't quite work as well for me, which was like they put rock music under a couple of the fight scenes, which that didn't really. I, I felt the cast was fine without the score. But definitely the modern music in the in the party sequence helped it immensely. Uh, and this thing was performed in 90 minutes, Mike. If you know anything about Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet in 90 minutes 
any Shakespeare play in 90 minutes, you're moving. Like it, the pace of this thing was so fast. It kept it fresh. It kept it energetic. The only problem with that is a couple of the death scenes went rushing by. And the death scenes have to have impact because that's the reason Romeo gets banished. That's the reason that sets the whole tragic ending in motion. So, and I felt that they didn't quite hit as hard as they could have. But also on the plus side, one of the things that the fast pace increases is the intensity of some of the violence. Because obviously Romeo and Juliet is a show that does contain violence. So one moment that actually was really effective is... <laughs> I almost wanted to say spoiler alert, but it's Romeo and Juliet. If if I'm spoiling Romeo and Juliet for you, you didn't go to like school. Um, <laughs> so uh, Romeo kills someone and that's what gets him banished. That moment happened so fast and so abruptly, it was utterly shocking. And I knew that it was going to happen. And I thought it was so, so effective, Mike. Uh... Did you know that I was once in a production of Romeo and Juliet? No, Russell, I didn't. Why don't you please tell me about it? <laughs> I was Benvolio, one of the most useless Cornholio? characters. Benvolio. Oh. <laughs> one of the most useless characters Shakespeare ever committed to paper. It suits you. So, yeah. <laughs> he just kind of wanders around, doesn't do much, shows up at the party, and then disappears after, I think, Act 3. So in the production that I was in, it was a fairly small cast. So they just had Benvolio show up at other scenes. So it became like stalker Benvolio, where I would just show up and watch people do stuff. Well, <laughs> since we talk about Fringe always having new twists on on Shakespeare, maybe you can start the Benvolio show. <laughs> Interesting. Where he swoops in and like kills Romeo and takes Juliet. Oh. Hmm. Intriguing. The Lost History of Benvolio. There you go. Yeah, anyway. No, Benvolio, not the most fascinating character in Romeo and Juliet. So, <laughs> moving on. This was really fun, and I loved the genre shopping, swapping. That was genre... Sh- gender? Gender. Wow, did I blow that one? <laughs> That's what she said. Ge- oh, gender swapping. I loved what they did with these characters. I thought this was... And by the way, this cast, great ensemble... Uh, just just loads of fun to watch them tackle this. They were having fun. You could see that they were really relishing this a lot. And and the whole switch of genre, uh, I keep saying genre, the whole switch of genders, like it, it just added so much to this and brought it to life in a way I've never seen before. I thoroughly enjoyed this production. That's awesome. And it's cool because Fringe always seems to do that, have like classics with a new twist. Yeah, absolutely. I... I, I you know, I would love to see this with obviously at Fringe because you're doing a quick load in, quick load out for all shows. This was basically a bare stage. I would love to see this on a full set. I think they would have a blast with this. After Romeo and Juliet, Mike, I went and saw something which features a few performers you and I have both encountered in previous shows. Something called Snow Fridge. This was put on by the group Dream Logic and features several immersive performers we have run into in other shows. And it's interesting, Mike, you and I are aware of certain things that have happened in the haunt community over the past few years. Um, Things have gotten more personalized depending on what show you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting thing to play with when you get information from a patron or you know information on a patron and you utilize it in a show. Snowfridge is a very short show, 15 to 20 minutes. 
And it is completely based on information you give the cast in advance. Uh, they ask you a couple of questions and uh, you can certainly choose to fill it out in any way you want to. What I did is uh, the, the questions were based on or, or alluded to things in your life that have been patterns that you may or may not want to change. Uh, and I gave them a very honest answer about a certain thought pattern I have. And the show was based on the answers to those questions that I gave them. It's a completely improvised show, completely focused on you. Uh, it's a very dreamlike show. I was greeted by sort of a dreamlike fairy-esque woman who explained that I was about to enter a dream and in dreams, everything that is created in our dreams, obviously, is a reflection or a manifestation that we have put in that dream. So anything that you're about to walk in and encounter is something that you helped create and you are the source. This kind of personalized immersive theater, I think, is fascinating. It's an interesting thing to play with. I know some people would be very uncomfortable with this. How come? Well, I, it's just literally you, you, I walked into this room and the show began for me and I'm going to really reveal some spoilerific things on my show. Probably. I don't know how similar the structure is for each patron. My guess is the structure may be very similar, but I, I walked in and, uh, you know, somebody put their hands over my eyes so I couldn't see at first. So I was in darkness and I started hearing my name being called by multiple voices and all of the attention was focused on me by I don't even know how many people there were in the show because it was so frantic and all over the place. Five to seven people, mm -hmm. all focusing their attention on me. At first, I was really uncomfortable because they took a piece of information that I gave them that was sort of a negative thought pattern that I sometimes get. And they started to sort of expand on that. And, and my first thought was, oh, they're kind of taking this in the negative territory. And the reason I gave them that information was I was hoping to make it, you know, make some kind of transition and turn it into a positive thing. And so like the first couple of minutes, I was really nervous at what the improv was focusing on. But then they actually shifted it the way I was hoping that they would. And so it was like, oh, I, I just didn't give them enough of a chance. They realized that this was a transformative a transformative idea of like, oh, I used to think this way and I wish I could manage that part of my life better. Uh, and yeah, I'm being very vague, but uh, it, it was an improvisational kind of romp through this dream landscape. Uh, there were little games that we played. There was a little bit of storytelling. Uh, the beginning was very free form. And then my show took a turn at one point where I was asked to actually focus and make a choice in the room. I had to choose an item in the room. They took the information that I gave them, Mike, and asked me to sort of put certain hopes, dreams, whatever, a wish, if, if I could make one, would be in this object. And then they started dealing with candlelight, and they started moving candles around and having me focus on various stuff, all in a very positive sort of new agey vibe, but also very fun and very playful. And then after that, we took that object and we started burying it and rolling around on the floor. And we started thinking of ways to destroy it and transform it into something else. 
And all again, all the while, like all of these people are dressed in glittery outfits from head to toe. They're like sprites or fairies or I, I don't know, mystical wizard guides of some kind. And for the 15 to 20 minutes running time of the show, they were nothing but encouraging and playful to me. And at times, very supportive. There was some physicality to this show. At one point, I was sort of wrapped up in a pile of the entire cast uh, where it was all about, you know, holding each other's hands and being there for each other. So it was a very warm, supportive vibe to the whole show. And I just, I, I just, I found it fascinating. I really think some people would be uncomfortable with that much attention focused on them. So if you can give yourself over to a situation like this, I think there's growth to be had here. I think there's self-reflection to be had, but it, I just find this an interesting territory and you and I know that there's events going on where this sort of thing is done privately, either for individuals or very small groups in the haunt world, uh, in the horror community, things like this are going on. And I find it a fascinating territory, but I, I, I'm, I will proceed with caution if I start dealing with, um, deeper, heavier subject matter. Makes sense. Cause this is, this could get very emotional very quickly. They tend to. Yes. But in, in my case, my snow fridge was a very positive, uplifting experience. And I think that's what their aim was, just by the goofy... Dude, there was so much glitter in this show. Holy <laughs> crap. There was so much glitter. <laughs> and I walked away with a little bit of it on me. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed snow fridge and thought it was a really cool experiment in, in, in uplifting immersive theater. Really cool. Excellent. After that... Uh, I did something called Rain, an electronic burlesque experience. Okay. Yeah, it, it's a very odd were description. They, were they robots stripping? <laughs> no, uh, this was a really interesting show. And if you read the description of this show, uh, there's there was a whole story trying to make a connection between you know sex workers and muses and things that inspire, uh, which unfortunately there was a technical issue at the show I was at. Uh, this show is a one-woman show, the character of Rain. She is portrayed by a woman who I'm about to slaughter her name, Elena Egasquiza. Squeeza? I'm not sure. I'm not even... Uh, I, I, that you're uh, on your own. Uh, <laughs> I am so sorry. I know I slaughtered that name. Um, she performs a whole show, and she is wired with a headset mic. And unfortunately, the night that I saw the performance, uh, I'm going to do something here. It's like her 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 vocal came out. The whole show, like a half hour plus show was sounded like that. So if there was a strong story that she told in the dialogue, unfortunately, I'd miss it. Luckily, this is a burlesque show and it is wall to wall music. It is written by the woman performing it. And she has a lovely singing voice. And when she sang, her voice actually came through just fine. It was just the dialogue that was so distorted and very hard to follow. And I kept looking at people around me. And I could see that, like, do you know what she's saying? I don't know what she's saying. Do you know what she's saying? Unfortunately, that kind of um, made the show less enjoyable. But this is about the visuals. And what she does is she tells scene after scene after scene, mini stories of positive reinforcement that we as human beings are just fine the way we are and she does it through 
very sexual play, very playful scenes. Uh, there's a lot of sexual imagery, but it's always done with a playful, oh, does this interest you? It's like, look how fun this is. Look how playful this is. And she very intelligently puts the audience on either side of her. So the audience, we were all visible to each other during the entire show, which makes you feel more awkward because it's a very, there's a lot of sensual stuff going on and a lot of sensual imagery going on as she's singing, as she's pulling people up from the audience. And there was so much audience interaction in this, Mike. She involved almost every single audience member at some point during the show. Wow. Doing like doing what? Uh, there was, there was some very light, playful, at one point she, you know, took, took a guy's belt off and then moved it to elsewhere on his body, you know, put it around his neck for a moment. So some of that is, would be considered maybe bondage imagery, maybe domination submission imagery, but the way she was presenting it, it was all play. So what happened with you? So uh, actually, I was one of the few people who did not get chosen for something specific. Oh. She came and she did. Um, she uh, gave me some jewelry. She put jewelry on me, and uh, she wrapped some uh, some stuff around my neck at one point. That's not spe- specific. Yeah, it's like, but but you know, I didn't get pulled up in front of the rest of the crowd. Oh, okay. It was like it was you know, she was. I just stayed seated. Other people, um, lightly. She had this very funny. It it was sort of a a whip that lit up. But it was like this thing would not hurt you unless you put a whole lot of force behind it. And she was playfully wrapping it around people and pulling them forward, getting people to dance with her Um, at one point, just literally letting them embrace her. Um, I'm giving a lot of spoiler stuff for this show, and and normally I would avoid doing that. But the whole point I want to make about this show and the positivity of this show is all of this imagery that she was doing, which some people would say is taboo or deviant or anything like that. She was she was presenting all of this in such a playful, upbeat, positive fashion. And near the end of the show, she she took a moment where she led us through sort of a group breathing exercise and a and a group meditation sort of relaxation thing. And then she brought home the point of like, hey, we're all humans. We all have bodies. We all feel things. Our bodies want to do things what about that is unnatural? What about that should make you feel bad? Which is unfortunately in, we live in a country where the culture quite often does want to make us feel bad about what we naturally feel. So this thing was a really, really fun exploration of some sensual sexual imagery uh, presented in a very playful manner. And so at the end of this, I, I will say there was some nudity at one point. But by the time the nudity arrived, the whole message, the whole subject matter of we're fine, it, it, it was so just natural. It was very brief, and it made the point wonderfully of like, you know what? We're all okay, and we should treat each other and ourselves with respect because we're all okay just the way we are. It sounds like it could be a good uh, double feature with, with Hush. Actually, yeah, I think it could be. I think they're very, very positive, you know, pro-human messages. So after you felt good about yourself, what happened next? (laughs) So uh, I actually, it's weird. We talked about this. Are you feeling good about yourself? (laughs) Damn you. (laughs) 
Well played, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is weird. I, I we made a joke about uh, my like my second weekend of Fringe was all heavy drama, like really really dark stuff. Yeah, like the the second half of my Fringe festival was mainly positive message shows, and I was really pleasantly surprised by a company called Flat Tire Theater and their show called Survival Check. And Mike, I went in not knowing what to expect, and the show began, and in my head. I was judging the show incorrectly. Oh, okay. And because it opens with, hey, sort of young 20-somethings or teens around a campfire. And they're going camping for the weekend. Uh-oh. <laughs> and, and literally the cliche started coming out. Like the, the, the guy that shouldn't have been invited, but somebody invited him mistakenly. The exes that get thrown together. You know, there's the jock character. There's the, the two girl best friends. One of them, dun, 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 carries a dark secret that no one wants to talk about. And these cliches started rolling out really rapidly. And in my head, I went, oh, man, where is this going to go? Well, I'm a jerk, Mike. I shouldn't have been thinking like that. <laughs> yeah, but given with what you just explained, it's kind of hard not to. Yeah. The, the pleasant surprise came when uh, everyone arrives for the camping trip. And they kind of like you get to know all of the characters. And you do get that reveal of there's a there's a dark thing that happened and this camping trip is supposed to distract one of the young women because of what she's feeling, uh, because of something in her past. All right. During the camping trip, <laughs> as they start looking for camp firewood and explore the area, somebody stumbles upon a chest in the forest and they open the chest and find magical items that twists the show into a different genre and it becomes a kind of a mix of genres and they awkwardly realize that okay there's there's some weird magic stuff going on and we don't know what's going on and then they meet another character and this character is sort of a scout like character he's a ranger and what you realize is with the magic items and the character they meet that they have stumbled into a bit of a and d campaign. <laughs> so what happens is they don't know what to do. They're sort of lost in the woods. And there's this weird guy who keeps talking about an evil that must be vanquished. So you have these stereotypes. And then what happens, Mike, is this wonderful twist happens where as they decide that they're going to follow this guy hoping that he will help them figure the way out of the woods. Those stereotypes learn that each of the items that they are carrying from that chest turns them into another stereotype. For example, now they're on a D and D campaign. So you have the ranger, you have the <laughs> sort of the bard, you know, the storyteller who has a, who has a loot. Uh, you have the wizard with a staff, you have a healer with a shield, uh, and you have the warrior with a sword. So now these stereotypes are now playing the role and taking on the the attributes of other stereotypes from the D&D &D world. It actually provided some huge laughs. 
but here's the really cool thing. <laughs> and like the, the but show. But wait, just, there's more. The, it, seriously, this show just kept giving. It was so much fun as 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 I as I started to realize what was going on. It's so much fun because what happens is as the 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 the, the characters you first meet in the first five to ten minutes realize that by taking on these other attributes, they are actually learning about themselves and their own strengths by acting out this weird campaign that this stranger in the woods is is going on. And I'm not going to reveal, there is a twist at the end that that character actually does connect to all of them and the deep, dark secret that is being hidden. But the way that it does, it becomes a completely life-affirming message. It becomes this weird, sincere, heartfelt moment that just serves as a reminder that no matter what you have in the past, the best thing that you can do to honor and support those around you who love and care for you is to live your life to the fullest. I was shocked when that message hit home because I didn't expect anything so wonderfully touching in this goofy adventure. I think Flat Tire Theater has done something really cool and special with Survival Check. I think it's a unique premise and it is campy. Do not go in expecting, you know, fine, fine, dramatic acting. They go for the camp. They go for the cliches. They Pun go intended? For the yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Unintended. Uh, and they do it really, really well. And it comes out, it ends up being this really touching, lovely piece. Uh, this this is one of the goofiest, weirdest, oddest, pleasant surprises I had at Fringe this year. I really enjoyed this. That's awesome. And on the same day, Mike, that I had that surprise, I went from that show to another show that was also just an absolute delight. And I really wish that you had had a chance to see this. Yeah, I I was at another show in the because that took place at Timely, right? The next is the show you're about to yes. talk about. Timely. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> And I was seeing another show when that show was prepping and just seeing what I saw, I was like, oh, I really wish I could see this, but I couldn't fit it in. Yeah, it's uh, Lights Out in the Hermit's Cave. And the premise is very simple and basic. It is old time radio dramas from the 30s and 40s. And actually, they are using scripts from radio dramas. One was called Lights Out. One was called The Hermit's Cave. Of course, those are old anthology radio shows. And they took those scripts and they created a show where the premise is the live audience is witnessing the recording of these shows. That is not quite exactly the way it plays out. They're not standing stationary. The actors actually have fun and they do act out much of the scenes. They roam through and around the audience at times. There's a, a Foley sound effects guy. Uh, who's you know playing music and making sound effects as needed for the stories. Uh, the acting style is that melodramatic sort of on-the-nose style because theoretically these are radio plays and they're made for listening. So the dialogue is sometimes on-the-nose and you occasionally do the, I think we should walk down that hallway to see where he went, you know, and, and that kind of like leading the listening audience. But what this cast really smartly does is they sort of turn it into a melodramatic feel and they actually move around the audience a bit and really just ham it up to the level that it becomes this fun, wonderful, 
just ghost story kind of storytelling. And the two stories, actually, I was surprised at how dark they got. They got pretty darn dark. Well, the lights are out. Thank you very much. (laughs) In the hermit's cave. Thank you. And in the middle of this, they had trivia questions for the audience, which I actually, I'm probably going to say I knew one of them and I won a movie ticket. <laughs> so Were they general trivia or no, about they were what you horror. just saw? Oh, cool. They were all horror themed. Yeah. Nice. So, uh, and, what, and, what did you win? What, t- what, like, what was the question? Uh, I got to admit the question, the question was probably the easiest of all of them. And that was, uh, and I was surprised. You probably shouldn't lead with that. (laughs) Just, just say the (laughs) question. All right. They wanted to know who was the create, the actual creator of the Adams family. Oh, okay. So, which do you know his name? No. That's Charles Adams. Yeah. So, uh. So technically I would have won if I said Adams. So, uh, no, they were, they were looking for the full name. Oh, damn. So, uh, but they were asking like about an old uh, horror hostess on television, which I, it's very funny because people made multiple guesses about that. And I had the wrong guess in my head and they, and I can't, you're going to, uh, I, I'm going to lose a little horror cred with you. Uh, they asked the name of the count, who the count was. Chocula. <laughs> yes, that was it. No, uh, in Nosferatu. And I couldn't remember his name. Oh. Because it's not Dracula, even it's... though that film is based on the Dracula. Grafflebach. Uh, what? Oh, wait, no, Count, the Count, not... No, wait. <laughs> no, because yeah. Grafflebach is the other guy. No, wait. Is No, it's, it is the Count. It's Orlock. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow, I hope uh, if they remount this show, I'm sorry we just gave away the answers to all your trivia questions. <laughs> so they did commercials in the middle of this, mic, and the commercials were old-time sort of campy melodramatic radio commercials except all of the commercials were for other fringe shows oh that's awesome and that was so fun uh yeah this was just a delight from beginning to end and the the cast was pitch perfect on this everyone there was just the audience was just laughing it up and and i will say this they did succeed in a couple of really effective jump scares because if you weren't paying attention as the audience member they were moving around the audience sometimes if they weren't on air, quote unquote. So they would sneak up behind people and scare them. That's pretty rad. It was really fun. It was really, really fun. Uh, Lights Out in the Hermit's Cave was just just a highlight for me. It was, it was It made my day. It was great. And on that same night... <laughs> This was one of the days, <laughs> this was, I did, uh, if I remember correctly, this was the day I did five shows in one day. So. Yeah. And, uh. I did that my first couple of weekends and. Yeah, I, I know learned my lesson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was fried after this weekend. Um, I saw something called, uh, The Universe 101, which this is one of the oddest shows I saw at Fringe this year. And I mean that in a good way. Like, dude, after this show, my head was so filled with so many questions in a good way. The premise of this show is that a quantum clown, played by Matthew Godfrey, uh, his name is Norbit, and he manages to transport a psychic comedian named Ivanian the Great, who was played by a gentleman named Ian Harvey Stone, transports him from 1865, right before a performance in Paris, to Los Angeles right now at the Fringe Festival. Oh, boy. Now, I said, I called the guy a quantum clown. He is a he is a clown. And he, at the beginning of the show, 
sets up the concept of time travel. He mentions quantum logic and quantum entanglement theories and, and all this. And he's a clown and he's bringing all this really intellectual science stuff up. And then he is theorizing that time travel is a real thing that is possible. And that's how Ivanian the Great, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, shows up and gets pulled into this. So the next hour is complete wackiness, complete slapstick. They they do some mentalism with the audience. Uh, there's vaudevillian type slapstick humor. There's jokes. Uh, at one point, they physically enact a time loop where they get stuck in a time loop and the audience has to break the show to get it to move forward. And I am not going to go into how that happens, <laughs> but it was so weird and so delightful to watch. And at one point, Schrodinger's cat theory comes in, oh, which that was boy. like one of those things like, all right, I know I discussed this in college science. I vaguely recall. <laughs> and then they actually made it relevant to daily life, sort of, and how we look at things today. So th this was crazy intellectual stuff. And some of this went way over my head, Mike. But they did it in such a way that it was completely enjoyable, completely crazy. And in the middle of this, they do a whole hypnotism sequence. Hmm. Where three audience members were hypnotized. And here's an interesting thing. I knew one of the people. Uh, his name is Eric. Uh, I knew one of the guys hypnotized. And I was able to talk to him afterwards because... It's like, are you a plant? <laughs> well, here's the thing. I don't. I don't know if we've ever talked about this. I apparently cannot be hypnotized. Yeah, we did because uh, we because we talked about it after we saw the show last year. Um, Secrets of the Victorian Charlatans. Oh, that's right. That's right. We did. Um, so at the beginning of this, he's sort of testing audience members, and I got to a certain point, and, and it's a physical thing. It's like, can you physically do this? Can you physically do that? And it's sort of the test of, I believe how receptive you are. And I, and and the guy walked over to me and, and was like, like resist my touch, resist my hand, you know, and like was putting pressure against my hand. And, and as soon as he like actually like directed the communication to me and, and I was putting pressure, uh, you know, uh, resisting the pressure he's putting on my hand, I, I was out. I was like, I was completely present. And he realized like, Oh, you're, you're not a good candidate. But uh, my friend, Eric, was and I talked to him later and there's a moment I don't want to give it away but there's a moment where they plant something with him an idea that he did act out later huh and and it's just a little like if you know your job is to say that this shouldn't happen and at one point later in the show suddenly you know Eric speaks up and says like wait a minute that can't happen and I talked to him later and I said you know how how does it feel because I was fascinating he and he said you're he was aware but he he felt this impulse, I think, was the way he put it, if I remember correctly. That's crazy. Like, he just, like, he knew that he needed to say something. He knew that he, like, that, that it was important that he say something. So I just find it fascinating that oh, yeah. that is a talent that somebody has. And like, I've, I've never been hypnotized, and I think I, 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 I told this to you, but after watching Get Out, Get Out, to me, is like the jaws of when people didn't want to go swimming after seeing jaws, like I never ever want to get hypnotized because of get out. Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, and I'm, I, now that you reminded me, it's like, yeah, my situation was, I was really curious about it at one point in my life. And I went, and I sought out a professional hypnotist and he ran me through a series of tests and, and he was like, I don't think this is 
It's like, I, I, you're not susceptible to it. And the guy that I went to was really good. I know he was really good. So, but yeah, so that was a fascinating show. And in the end, the audience helps set everything in the universe right again. Oh, good. And it's just just wonderfully wacky show. So, and it's like I said, so much of this went above my head, and yet I had a blast watching it. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really, really fun. And so, after all of that, Mike... I went to a midnight show. So this was all on the same day. This was all on the same day. All right. <laughs> and the midnight show, oddly enough, was called The Midnight Menagerie. Uh, this, absolutely, this year, the closest thing to flat-out, gross-out comedy that I saw. Nice. Yeah, there was there was there there were fluids flowing. Let's just say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> as far as the show itself, it, it starts with an uh, interesting premise of, especially L.A., uh, since this was being performed in Hollywood, a uh, former possible mobster uh, writes a screenplay, pours his heart and soul into it. It gets made and he feels that the studio and all the executives and all the, the cast and all the people around ruined his vision. Well, that's true, right? Probably for uh, it happens. most of anything in L.A. <laughs> but he's sort of an ex-mobster type. So what would he do? He'd take revenge, right? Yeah. So that's the story, and that's literally like the first couple minutes of the show that all gets set up. Uh, Story-wise, I think I'm going to be a little cautious about revealing too much, because this is almost like a clue-like premise in the fact that there is, like, somebody is going to die. You know that. Mm -hmm. So what happens is all of these over-the-top characters... The, the over-the-top actress who's insecure about her age and her performance and, you know, the flighty, slightly effeminate, uh, you know, producer character. Uh, like, there's all of these characters come to this party that this guy is throwing, and then he ends up pitting them against each other to save their lives. You have the, the double-crossing agent. There's an assistant character, which is very, very funny, um, who also gets into the mix, uh, story-wise, I don't think I, I can say much more than that. I will say this. Story-wise, it didn't necessarily work really well for me. Partially because the whole thing is set up on a premise. I'm not going to tell you exactly how this unfolds, but it's sort of, you are the love of my life. I love you dearly, so I'm going to leave you alone now. Mm. And it's hard that the whole show kind of pivots on that because of something that happens. So I, right from the beginning, I was like, okay, this, this doesn't seem logical to me, but that's not where the gold is. If, if you like gross out humor, uh, the one-upmanship of these characters trying to throw each other under the bus to save their own skin, that's where the comedy is. And it gets really hectic, really frantic, really funny. And if you like gross out comedy, there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> uh, lots of, and because it's it's sort of a hit plot where, you know, people are going to be assassinated or killed possibly, there's a chance for injuries and blood and maybe some vomit. Is there a splash zone? Uh, you know what? They actually do say that if you're sitting in the front row... <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's a you... Uh, yeah, some things I think went into the audience. But like I said, the, the the fun here was watching these really big caricature type characters just 
have it out with each other and try to throw each other under the bus to save their own skin. That's that's where this was really, really funny and did work. Uh, I will also say that I would love to have seen this cast play this in a bigger space because the, ca- the, the, the stage was so small that that kind of worked against them in a couple of areas. So I, the, like, you know, as you're, as the scuffles happened and, and the various scenes happened where people were like dealing with their final sequences, I wish they'd had a little bit more space to play, but that that's, that's not on them. That's, that's just the, the limitation of the space that they were in. Um, yeah, the, this cast went for it totally. And some of the character stuff was really, really fun. It just didn't speak to me really heavily, but the audience I was with was having a great time. Absolutely. And I think I was very tired by the time midnight rolled around. Well, I was going to say after that, did you see another show or did you I went home, home and crashed because I had more shows the next day, Mike. Why don't you tell us all about them? <laughs> I attended a workshop performance of something called Rochester 1996. So for those of us that aren't smart, what does that mean? Uh, Rochester, New York. No, no. In the year what, what is a workshop performance, <laughs> Russell? Uh, <laughs> they, uh, the actually, uh, the director of the show uh, sort of rode with us uh, and followed us. This is an immersive piece in multiple locations, and she came out before the show and said, "I'm going to be with you. Pretend I'm not here." And she was taking notes. And um, or is that part of the meta? So, <laughs> no, she was taking notes and, and, you know, making notes of things that were working smoothly and things that were not. Um, I am going to be very, very brief on this because what's going to happen with this show is it's going to come back later in the year. Uh, this is from Capital W and Diecraft, Los Angeles. This show revolves around a character named Devril, uh, pardon me, Reverend Daniel Shoemaker, uh, played by Thaddeus Schaefer and his wife, Emily, Kelsey Landon Olson, and their daughter, Philippa, who is played by, and I am so going to slaughter this name too, Naria Duhart. That's the key family that you're following during this show. The Reverend is obviously a very passionate religious man, a devoted family man. You start this show with an introduction to the daughter. She's your sort of your window in. And I'm not going to tell you exactly how they utilize her, but I will say this. You start this show watching, you know, Reverend Daniel in his element. And it's this wonderful, immersive piece involving his congregation. And then the story shifts. And after that service ends, you get involved in the family's day. And that's about all I want to say as far as the content goes. This is a very important day in their life, and the relationships in the family are shifted forever by a certain series of events that happens involving one of the congregation. As I said, this was a workshop performance. There was some clunkiness. In the performance I went to, there were some technical glitches with sound. Um, apparently, we were told later that there should have been more music present at, at, at one sequence. Uh, the multiple locations is very interesting. The middle section was very rough when I saw it, and a portion of this show takes place outside in and around a van, and some of that staging was a little bit awkward and I think still needed to be finessed a bit, which is why we had someone riding along with us taking notes. I have a feeling that that will all be worked out. This is a long show. It was almost three hours when I saw it. Wow. 
the reason is the multiple locations of you going from place to place. And this unfolds in a very real time dynamic when you get into the scenes. Obviously, there's there's some time jumps here and there. But once you get into the scenes, they play out very realistically. And it's very touching and it's very moving. Like I said, that that's about all I want to say, other than the fact that I found the performances. And I should also mention... Um, there, uh, one of the congregation, Dasha Kittredge, uh, who's an actress that we've seen, also seen before in numerous shows, uh, her performance in particular sort of like is the anchor for a lot of the emotion of what happens in the third act. And I don't want to say much more than that, other than the fact that you're sort of getting a slice of life from 1996 in this pastor's, in this reverend's world, in this reverend's family's universe. And I found it to be a fascinating journey, and I really, really enjoyed this. Like I said, rough around the edges. I sincerely hope I haven't said too much already, but uh, tickets will go on sale for this uh, later this month, I believe. Uh, They're planning on bringing it back in September, and I think this is something to catch this is this is unique immersive theater very unique and i should mention it's uh by some of the people who brought you red flags and hamlet mobile or hamlet mobile (laughs) however you want to pronounce it so what were you you said you get to see a slice of life uh, from 1996 so what were you doing in 1996 what was i doing in 1996 yeah uh i was working somewhere here in los angeles 1996, that was after I worked for Corman Studios. That was back in when I was working more in live action than animation. Wow. Hold on a second. <laughs> Hold on. Now you got me thinking. Hold on. What did I do? I don't think your phone is going to tell you what you were doing in 1996, Russell. I was working on some live action something somewhere. <laughs> something low budget that didn't pay well, probably. All right. Yeah, that was probably what I was doing in 1996. What were you doing in 1996? Uh, it was my first year of college. I was going to shows almost every night, and I was skating at the bank almost every night. When there wasn't a show, I was skating. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, that's it. Your answer is more fun than mine. Well, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on from that show, I saw something which, this is one of those just gems of Fringe Festival when you find something like this. I saw a show called Laertes Loves Hamlet Loves Ophelia. If you don't recognize those names, those are Shakespearean characters, Mike. I know that. (laughs) Why do you have to say it to me? Why couldn't you say like to the listeners? Okay, listeners, just in case you didn't recognize those names, they're characters from Hamlet. Uh, and this is a three person cast. It, it was written by the three performers who play the roles. So Caitlin Schiller plays Hamlet. Uh, Peyton Ackerman plays Laertes and Kelly Pierre plays Ophelia. This is a twisty, fun, rethink, alternative timeline sort of show. Uh, the show begins that these three characters walk in having come from Hamlet's father's funeral. What ensues is this trippy thing where all of the the stuff that these characters deals with in the Shakespearean world are present. You know, Hamlet sees things and all of that. But 
the premise of this particular show is that to be supportive of to be supportive of Hamlet, Laertes and Ophelia let Hamlet move in with them and share an apartment. So it's through the chemistry between these three people, Mike is amazing. It, it, it's like the, the, you, you watch something like this and you go like, Oh, these people have to know each other off stage because this is so natural and so real. Uh, and what follows is this exploration of if Hamlet feels that his dad might've been murdered, how would friends react to that? What actions would they take? How would they explore this? And then add to that, the sexual dynamic of three people sharing this very intimate small space, there's a sexuality present in this show. There's this chemistry between these actors. This is a fascinating show to watch unfold. And they're really honestly trying to take care of each other. Their intentions are good, but the execution of everything is where these friends fail each other. And rather than being upfront, there starts to be lies and deceit, a little bit of betrayal, or at least some of the actions are interpreted as betrayal. So it actually feels like there are Shakespearean things going on with these characters and they're Shakespearean characters, but they're set in a modern setting and there's cell phones being used and the intertwining of these things is just, it's magical. I mean, it was so much fun and it's really funny and it's really sincere the the discovery near the end where Ophelia discovers certain things about what Hamlet has been saying is this beautiful reckoning among the three of them that just, you know, is going to reverberate for years among the, these three people. Uh, there's, there's wonderful stuff. Hamlet is portrayed as this possibly manipulative, but totally dynamic character uh, and uh, Laertes is portrayed sort of as an everyman character, but he so desperately, sincerely wants everything to be okay because he cares about the other two people that he's willing to overlook things he shouldn't and he's willing to do things he probably shouldn't or forgive things he probably shouldn't. That that it's just like th these are really, truly realistic feeling friendships. And it is mind-bendingly trippy as to how this unfolds. I loved this show, and I loved this cast. I, th this was truly a highlight of the day for me. That's excellent. And you love the Shakespeare stuff at Fringe. Like, every <laughs> year you go to at least, like, two or three shows. Uh, it, it, there has been some stuff at, sh at Fringe, yeah. It's like, I, you know, look, hey, the Shakespeare guy, you know, Bill Nudie was doing the plot, you know? You're on a first-name basis with him. <laughs> <laughs> that Billy Shakespeare, he knew what he was doing. So um, th this was just, I don't know, it was so much fun, but at the same time, it was just like this, there was this electricity by the end of the show, I felt, with the audience. I just, I really, really liked this show. Okay, Mike? Yes? I took a break. <laughs> For what, an hour? I actually scheduled a break during my day. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take this time slot off. I'm going to go. I'm going to casually eat dinner somewhere. Maybe I'll meet a friend or How something. How does one casually eat dinner? So, Are you like, you're sitting back in the booth? Like, yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, loosen the collar a bit, you know. Uh, so that was my intention. And I was walking down the street thinking to myself, where am I going to eat? What am I going to do? I wonder if there's anyone around in town. And uh, we have a mutual friend, Morgan. Yeah. And we have a mutual friend, Lauren. Who? 
Uh, and apparently they were seeing shows at Fringe that day. Just kidding. I love you guys. <laughs> and I get this text from Morgan. Basically, it says, where are you? I said, oh, I'm at Fringe. You know, I'm I'm about to grab something to eat. And, the, and he said, go to this theater and ask if they have a ticket right now. Because they were coming out of a show. And I said, seriously, I was going to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, no. It's like, this is worth it. Go see this show. And that show was called Escape from Ghetto. I walked up and I said, I it, do by chance. I know this is last minute. Do you have one ticket for the show? Uh, I believe, what, eight people total, I believe, if I remember correctly. And they said, oddly enough, we only have one ticket available. And so I said, it's mine. <laughs> So I handed over the cash and I bought a ticket for the show. So I I never got my break and I never got my food. Escape from Gatto is sort of a very odd premise, which I'll get into in a second. But there is an escape room element to this. And when I walked up and and, uh, I immediately recognized some faces that you you will know. Um, Kevin was there and uh, Leah and Chris uh, were there and they we formed like half the audience and then there were some other people that we uh, didn't know but we quickly got friendly with because we had to do this show together all right i'm going to be a little obtuse about this obviously the reference uh, in the title is it referenced beckett's famous existential play uh, waiting for Godot. i'm sure you're familiar with existential crisis beckett Waiting for Gato, right? The only existential I'm used to is alone. <laughs> um, famous play, two characters waiting for someone named Gato that never shows up, and they ponder the meaning of life, their actions, what it all means, what they're looking for. Uh, very, very famous classic play. All right, this is not that play. Actually, very cleverly, what this is... Well, first of all, this thing takes place in under an hour, and the Beckett play is much longer than that. So th- this is not that play. Actually, what has been very, very cleverly done here is it's sort of a homage, and they have similar characters to the classic play, but it's written in a way that makes you think of the original, but it's not. It's designed for the audience that is seeing this show, because... Mm, I'm getting too spoilery. Let's do this. We were given instructions at the beginning of listen to the performance. It's a game. The game is the show. The show is the game. Sort of that mentality. So what happens is we sit down and this play starts to happen. And it's reminiscent of Waiting for Godot, but it's not. And we start to realize that certain things are being stressed in the text that the actors are speaking. Certain words are being repeated. And that's as far as I'm going to go with that. Okay. And then as an audience, we had to decide. And and literally, I was looking around going, um, are we supposed to like move from our seats? Are we like, what are you like? And so we're, the audience started whispering each other, like, what exactly are we supposed to do? That's, the adventure of this show is figuring out what you're supposed to do. And yes, they tell you up front, there's an escape room element. So you have to figure out what the purpose is. So here's the deal. We're sitting there trying to figure out what our actions would mean and what could happen if we did certain things or if we didn't do certain things. 
So we, as the sort of escape room attendees, are having the same examinations about our actions and their meaning that are in classic extensional conversations. Ah, tricky. This is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so literally, it's like, oh, well, if we do this, if we do nothing, like, what will it affect? If we do something, what will it affect? Like, all of that is so present and so real, and it's so much fun. This was a blast. Now, what happened with this show is it did not have a normal fringe run. What they did, the creators of the show, uh, booked one theater the entire day and just ran show after show after show. Reason for that is because there's so much load in and load out with props and certain things that are needed by the actors. They just did it for one day. And so they didn't have many tickets on sale. I'm so lucky that our friends Morgan and Lauren contacted me and said, go do this because it was an absolute blast. That's awesome. I've heard numerous people who were lucky enough to get tickets to the show say how much they enjoyed it. So yeah, I, I've heard a lot of good feedback on the show. And unfortunately, that was the day I was at Overwatch League. Uh, yes, I believe it was. Um, no, it was. That's oh, what I'm saying. Okay. How was Overwatch <laughs> League, by the way? No, keep go. It, I, it has nothing to do with Fringe. It, <laughs> but it, was, it was fun. If you like watching people play video games on a screen that's bigger than your house. Hmm. So Okay. Sounds... Awesome. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, I do have a little bit of information on this show because uh, I had a conversation afterwards uh, with the creators of the show who are Andy and Jeff. And apparently <laughs> the this show was born. Th this is the way it was. Uh, I, I actually asked a couple of questions. And apparently uh, the co-creator Jeff and a friend uh, we're, we're texting about weird, obscure, interactive experiences. And one of them made a joke about, like, I wonder if we could get funding for an escape room set inside a production of Waiting for Godot. Uh, apparently, uh, Jeff said this to Andy, uh, and she said, wow, uh, we have to do that if it doesn't exist. <laughs> so can you tell that they are theater people? <laughs> yeah. So uh, they wanted, and I had a conversation with Andy, and she said that they premiered and closed 193 days after that initial text conversation. That's fast. The concept was fairly clear to us, she said. Uh, I'm reading a quote from her, actually. And directing the cast was an absolute blast, but weaving puzzles, clues, and games into a sound alike of Beckett's play was the biggest challenge. And that's that's when we got to the end of this, that was the thing. I was like, wait a minute. It's like, that was way too short for being, and it's no, it's a very clever sound alike where they hide certain things in the text that you need to know. So it's like, I, I think this is a really impressive achievement. Also, by the way, <laughs> uh, Jeff works in themed entertainment and Andy works in television and they had a brand new toddler uh, while they were doing this show. So she told me like it was absolute madness while it was happening and they don't regret a second of it. So now this is the future because I've heard numerous people say, I wish this would become something. I wish it would come back. Uh, They're trying to figure out how to remount this show now. Um, They're going to talk to some theaters. Uh, They obviously, because of the load in time and load out time, they would love it to be in a location for a little while and to actually develop for a specific location, if they could do that. Uh, she says, she, she wrote to me later when I asked her a couple questions, this was actually developed with a fringe mentality, 
but there are some comforts we are looking forward to with an extended run. Not to mention, we can't wait to share this piece we love so much with as many fun-loving, ennui-afflicted humans as we can. So they are, uh, I, I, like I said, I had a conversation with both of them. They're both really, really fun, energetic people to talk to. They do want this to go on. The key thing is to remember, it's not Waiting for Godot. It's not. <laughs> it's like they've written something completely original uh, that references the, the classic characters and the classic ideas behind that play. So if you want more information, uh, we didn't put this. I actually uh, put a uh, written review up for this already. Uh, at that time, I didn't have this information, but they do have a website at Mr. and Mischief dot fun and eventually when information becomes available uh they will have information there and also follow their instagram they have a fun instagram at mr and mischief uh so for all of the people who loved escape from Godot when it was at the fringe festival there is hope that this will come back in some form wait did you escape not only did we escape (laughs) (laughs) uh and and here's the thing i i can't give you a specific time because well i mean it doesn't matter you probably beat horror buzz anyway <laughs> oh harsh uh we set the record oh so yeah there you go <laughs> <laughs> but i don't want to tell you what it is because because of information there's a maximum time like the show won't go over an hour right but there's also a minimum time because they wrote an existential play that is performed by people as you are trying to figure out what you're supposed to be doing. So they wrote this play and there's a minimum amount of time that that play takes to unfold. And I will not say what it is. Yeah, good. But we were less than 10 minutes over that. Okay. So we went pretty fast and they actually complimented us afterwards. They said like, this is one of the most business-like groups that we've had so far. Well, it's half the group was a bunch of ringers. So... <laughs> Uh, it's like a, a, at least half the group. And I, and it, the, here's the funny thing. A couple of people uh, in the group, I don't think really knew what they were getting to escape room wise. But within a few minutes, like we were all working together. Like we, it, it, it was like I've rarely seen a, like strangers and people who don't know each other congeal so quickly. Like this, this like we meshed really quickly on this, and that that's why we ended up doing so well, I'm sure. Uh, and it was fun and playful, and everybody had it was one of those where everybody had the moment to shine. And I will say, uh, for those of you who get a chance to do this sometime in the future, because I am willing this into the universe that this thing will come back because I think this is so much fun. This thing ends, Mike, on such a beautiful, touching, like really kind of very theatrical moment that embraces the audience and the cast and everyone involved. It's really cool. Okay. Trust me. (laughs) Yeah, that will go over great. (laughs) So, Mike, after I kind of dealt with an existential crisis with my friends, uh, I actually did manage to get a little bit of food. You probably needed a drink, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Actually, I did run into a couple of people, and we did have a drink. So, uh... Went from there to... Well, that setup just didn't work that I, the way I thought it would. So, I'm sorry. Did I miss something again? Well, the next show you're about to talk about. Oh. <laughs> Anyways, go on. My next show is called A Life Behind Bars, which is about bartending. 
See, so when you, you know, you have drinks at a bar. Got it. From the bartender. I am so sorry I blew that for you. That's what she said. Oh, God. Why do I never see this coming? (laughs) Stop it. Don't even. (laughs) So uh, A Life Behind Bars stars uh, a great, great storyteller named Dan Ruth. And he, for years, was a bartender in New York City in all types of bars in high-end stuff, dive bars. And he has literally absorbed all of this quirky knowledge and he has witnessed so many oddball characters over the years. And he has written and he performs a show called A Life Behind Bars that is his examination of these characters that he has met and people that you encounter in bars and that he has had either the pleasure of dealing with and serving or the displeasure of dealing with and serving. And this is one of those just little miraculous shows of storytelling. This was so, so well performed. He does bring to life multiple characters and they're rich, they're vibrant. Some of them get a little sad when they're drunk. And the whole theme of the show is, for me when you get to the end of it and you realize that all of this has taken a toll on Ruth's own personal life and decisions he's made. And, you know, he himself wrestles with dealing with alcohol in his own life. And this show is a reflection of the characters he's met along his journey. So sometimes he's performing as a bartender and sometimes he's performing as a patron of the bar. And the wonderful thing about this, Mike, is the honesty of each character. You completely believe everyone that he brings to life. And it's like you get to hear each character individually, but it also it's the reflection of server and person being served and that relationship, whether it's filled with respect or dread or, I don't know, antagonism. (laughs) It's a weird mix of, of... barflies and oddball characters that it just it forms this weird like montage feeling and by the end of it you realize that Ruth has actually revealed a side of himself and what it takes to be good at what he does and sometimes if he gave too much of himself it seemed he would get lost and that's not a good thing to lose yourself so I feel like I'm not doing this show justice uh, because in the end, when he explains his own personal journey and he, he drops the characters and, and there's a sequence in the middle where he, he shares some escapades dealing with a particularly ornery landlord and um, you know, someone that he meets and brings home one night and the connection that they feel it all of that is really touching and endearing, but it also makes you realize how vulnerable everyone is at certain points in their life. And as the bartender, you know, he absorbs so much of story, so much of everything that people are throwing at him emotionally that, you know, he's taken all of that and he's turned it into this wonderful lovely confessional storytelling experience i i this is one of the best performed shows i saw at fringe this year wow 
that's saying a lot. Yeah, and, and I and it made me think about um the Sam Shaver show that mm-hmm. we talked so lovely about on the the very first yeah. coverage of the Fringe Festival this year. You know, not similar subject matter in any way. But just the storyteller aspect. The, the great storytelling, the realism. Uh, he he does a really fine job of bringing these characters to life. And some of them you will recognize. And it's funny because I, I, I have a great deal of respect for bartenders anyway, because, you know, a, a good, fr- uh, actually I know two good friends who used to bartend and they both have horror stories from those periods of their life. And here's someone who's taking that position and showing us multiple sides of it, the good, the bad, like this is this is really a wonderful show, and you know I've spent some time in New York bars, and I recognized a few of the bars that not specifically by name, uh, but I recognize the types of bars, and I'm not much of a drinker, so it's fascinating for me to hear a bartender's take on the customers the way this is. It's like this this is a glimpse inside a world that many people will never have access to. And the fact that he's sharing so openly about himself and his experiences, this is fascinating. I I thoroughly enjoyed this show and it's incredibly well-performed. He is fascinating to watch on stage. Awesome. Yeah. It's just the storytelling here is top notch, just absolute top notch. And that ended my second weekend at fringe. (laughs) Yeah, second official weekend, third week because we had a preview weekend. Uh, at this point, I was completely lost, Mike. And at that point, you only had one other show to go. And that's why I suggested we wait until that one, one show <laughs> happens and then we can just record because it didn't make sense to record all these shows and then a separate podcast for one. Yeah, because we were going to do a podcast. We actually had set aside a night last week to yep. record a podcast and get it out in the, at the end of last week. And then what did you do? Like the theater junkie you are? I bought more tickets, Mike. Yep. I might have a problem. Five times as many <laughs> tickets as yeah, you were supposed I, to have. I binged. I binged again this past weekend, uh, starting with something which, hey, we've talked about this show before, not on the podcast. We've talked about the show between the two of us because it's something that's come up a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we, I ended up being out of town last time that this show, uh, was mounted. Right. And I think you were, it was during the Christmas season. Yeah. Uh, and I'm talking about a show called A Very Die Hard Christmas, which is a musical parody of the classic film, the classic Christmas story, Die Hard. Because it is an effing Christmas movie. Absolutely. 100%. It is a Christmas tale. Just like Gremlins. So absolutely. (sighs) Phoebe Cates, I've had, Santa Claus. I've yeah. had so many arguments over the years about this. Oh, no, it's it's a Christmas movie. And if you have any doubt, a very diehard Christmas will drive that point home. <laughs> so this is really like this is just zany, playful version. They retell the 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 plot of the action film with Bruce Willis, but this live version, it includes all the iconic moments. But they just riff on the source material. They poke fun at it because there are a few plot holes in that movie. (laughs) And they poke fun at it. They also have a wonderful time introducing a couple of other characters from other Christmas classics and work them into the narration. That's awesome. It's it. Yeah. The narrative takes a couple of really odd turns that were just just brought down the house. There's some very clever lyrics poking fun at all of the familiar characters and the stereotypes and how this whole holiday thing is going wrong for everybody. 
uh, the cast having so much fun. And the when I saw this show from the opening jokes, the, the, the narration in this show is done by one of the supporting characters of the movie. And he turns it into a Christmas tale even more than it already is. And from the opening moments, the audience was completely on board with this, Mike. I mean, they were so ready for this. The cast has so much fun. The characterization of Hans Gruber is by an actor named Jim Mardukai. I hope I am pronouncing that correctly. Uh, he is just deadpan comic perfection. You don't watch Bob's Burgers, even though I try to force you to, right? <laughs> I've seen a few episodes. Have you seen the one where Gene writes the Die Hard musical? No. Because I just keep thinking... Like a mashing this up with that and having something, like he has okay. the amazing number. Like I'm Grubin, I'm Hans Gruber, and I'm Grubin. <laughs> something, something, and I'm you're shooting. Gonna, you're gonna have to show me this. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah, his portrayal of Hans Gruber in the musical here, and his, all of his entire crew of terrorists or burglars, however you want to look at them. Uh. They get the biggest laughs in the show, I think. I, I just like there are so many moments between them where they poke fun at the whole how many of them are there, where are they, how do they get from point A to point B. They, they have so much fun with the terrorist group uh, that that those are some huge, huge laughs. And also the songs, the lyrics, they're they're really fun. Uh, I, I also want to point to uh, their John McClane is actually African American, is an actor named Wade Wilson. They have fun with the. F- Wade Wilson? Yes. That's Deadpool. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. Sorry. So Deadpool <laughs> is John McClane. Awesome. Uh, and uh, Wade Wilson's, when he does the Bruce Willis voice, he is so dead on. And there are times when you, w- if you closed your eyes, you would swear you were listening to Bruce Willis do this role live. Uh, but he makes it his own, totally. And I will say that, that, he and at various other times, they make fun of the fact that they are staging this huge action thing that's so well known on a bare bones stage with very minimal props. And they keep pointing to that and having fun with it. And one of the things that I loved about the show is obviously the John McClane character gets injured over and over and over again in this movie. And they play up the injuries and they have so much fun with his appearance as the show goes on that by the end of the show, it, it just, it was so hysterically funny. The final time he walks on stage, it's just like, they're having so much fun with that. And also I, another person that really, really does a great job in this is, uh, the character of Holly, his wife. Is it Gennaro or McLean? Actually, they cover both names. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they explain why uh, she has a wonderful production number in the middle of the show. Uh, like, and uh, Holly is portrayed by an actress. And I'm again with the names. Curie Horton, I believe is how you would pronounce it. Uh, she has a lot of fun. Th- this entire cast is, is a strong ensemble. They're having a good time. The visual gags are funny. The, the They have a lot of fun riffing on 80s TV shows. They have a lot of fun riffing on classic Christmas characters. I I don't want to tell you who else shows up, but they have a brilliant uh, Rankin and Bass Rudolph Red-Nosed Reindeer reference that just brought down the house. And uh, yeah, it's this This is goofy fun. I totally hope this comes back at Christmas because it, it's something that you could do with a group of friends, 
it's it's just so much fun to go to the Nakatomi Plaza Christmas party. It's just like this is this thing was so goofy, over the top fun. You no, know, once I actually went to Nakatomi Tower. Yes. No, I actually went to the building that was yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fox Plaza. Yep. So which you know, right behind that, you go behind that and it's where they shot one of the, the all of the Planet of the Apes sequel. Oh, okay. Is it's the future it's the one that takes place in the future, which I'm drawing a blank. Is that escape? I think so. Uh, yeah, it was, it was all shot right behind that building too, uh, in the Century City pl- uh, mall area, which they've changed a lot of that now. Uh, but yeah, that, that whole area was in one of the Planet of the Apes sequel, because at the time it was brand new apparently. So it looked futuristic. So yeah, that, that's a lot of filming done in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so after having that much fun, which and that thing was a blast, I went and saw another musical. But this one was not as fun, but I can't fault the musical. Uh, I had a, an odd experience, which occasionally things can go wrong at Fringe. Um, I went and saw something called Cthulhu the Musical, which is by a group called Puppeteers for Fears. And this is a really fun, interesting group. And I want to do a quick plug for their website because th- this is this is who they are. They specialize in horror and science fiction themed musical comedies written for puppets. <laughs> you got me Uh, yeah absolutely i was in uh and when i heard that they were coming to the fringe fest uh with cthulhu the musical i was like all right a musical with puppets the story of cthulhu i'm in and i was actually supposed to see that with you but as you just heard my (laughs) trying to laugh slash cough yes (laughs) i didn't want to cough through the whole thing so i had to opt out all right so there's good news and there's bad news here the bad news first, they were thwarted by a horrible sound system, which in a musical... It's death. Yeah. And that was a serious problem for them to overcome. Uh, so I don't feel like I, I got a fair performance of Cthulhu the Musical. I will say this about it. I feel it's too long because the show clocked in at just under two hours. That's a long puppet show. But... The plus yeah, side. If you hate fun. <laughs> the plus side is look, the puppets are really well designed. I really enjoyed them. Uh, there's a lot of fun. The dialogue came through pretty clearly. Uh, but anytime that the band started performing, the mics that were on the performers couldn't overcome the band. So the audience just sat through these songs, not hearing anything. So we, we didn't hear any of the lyrics at all. So that became very frustrating. I wanted to stay because I wanted to see the puppets in the second act. And the reveal at the end of the old one uh, brought down the house. It's a great, amazing puppet that they created. Uh, Like I said, they were thwarted by a bad sound system that worked against them. But I would love to have the chance to see these guys elsewhere. And by the way, they're based in Ashland, Oregon. And they are on tour, and this was a stop in their tour. So if you go to puppeteersforfears.com, you can learn more about their tour dates. Uh, I, I have to see these guys perform again sometime to give them another shot because it, just, it was just an unfortunate situation. And like they have a very brief intermission, which, by the way, I love this. They put a timer up. They put a countdown up for intermission, which I loved because it's a fringe show. Their intermission was very short five minutes 
And so it got people back in the seats effectively, timely. It was like, I love the fact that they did that. Uh, but I noticed about a quarter of the audience in the back of the house left at intermission. And I don't think it was the quality of the show. I think it was mainly the sound system that was the problem. So I did not get to experience Cthulhu the musical the way it should have been. But I, I see the potential here. Absolutely. And really nice puppet design. Really nice. Do you understand their name? So Puppeteers for Fears? Yeah. Reference to an 80s band? Yeah. So. So yes. With the. Yes is the answer that you're trying to say. Okay. Tears for Fears who had the hit song Shout, which was about primal scream therapy. I just wanted to see if you got the reference (laughs) of the name, man. I don't want to go into like. (laughs) But also uh, they did Mad World. So yes, which is a beautiful, beautiful song. Okay, Mike. You and I have talked a little bit recently about the universe mocking me. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, poking me and saying, why aren't you dealing with crap and et cetera. This is one of those weird things. The next show that I went and saw is called A Beast, A Burden. It was written and directed by a gentleman named Billy Ray Bruton. It's based on a couple of different biographical texts about a artist known as Chris Burden, who is a controversial art figure. Some people would call what he does performance art. He, some people would call them political statements. He is a very odd artist that does installations, quite often featuring himself as part of the art. For some reason, I don't know why, Chris Burden's name keeps coming up in my life over the last couple of years. And I became aware of him about two years ago. You and I actually wound up at one of his exhibits. We did? Yeah, he is the guy who created Urban Light, which is the installation of all of the lights outside the um, L.A. County Museum of Art. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, that's one of his later pieces. And But he's been doing stuff since the early, early 70s. I, for some reason discovered something about him, thought it was interesting. His name kept coming up. People have referenced, sent me YouTube videos out of the blue. Where it's like, hey, I thought you would enjoy this interesting installation art piece. Come to find out it was done by Chris Burden. Um, he, he did this very, very odd piece involving sort of kinetic energy that I, I just found fascinating to to look at. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a bunch of information. And you can go online and learn about his various pieces. And there's video of him speaking about some of his art. He's a very, very odd guy. And for some reason, his name keeps coming up in my life. And I opened the Fringe Guide this year, and there's a show called A Beast of Burden, which is a biographical play about five months in this guy's life. So I was like, okay, universe, <laughs> I guess I'm going to see this play. And I would try to get it to it earlier in the fringe schedule, Mike, but I just, I just, it couldn't work out because I was being foolish and doing far too many shows. Uh, when you say far too many shows really quick, it sounds like fart, far too many. <laughs> Thank <Sorry>. you. <laughs> we've, we've been recording for a long time. <laughs> I know we're wrapping it up soon. Trust me. I really enjoyed this. I thought this was provocative. I thought it was fascinating. Uh, They interestingly recreate physically some of the pieces he's known for, uh, which is just, it puts you on the edge of your seat a little bit because it's edgy stuff. And the, the advantage to this piece is it becomes an observation about what art is, what it means to us, and how you interpret something. 
And I love the fact that this piece actually begins with an art reviewer and a photographer walking into one of his installations and Chris Burden was part of the installation and the two people get into an argument over what it means. Cause one of the guys, one of the, 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 it's a couple and the guy doesn't get it at all and just sees pretentious nonsense. And the woman says, no, there's value here. And that sets the show up perfectly. And the entire time, Chris Burden is part of the art, but he's completely silent, which that's what happens with art. Art is silent and you project or interpret what you need onto the art. So it becomes this fascinating setup. And there's another sequence where, uh, like I said, he there is video of some of his pieces. But even in Chris Burden's own words, if you watch a video of something, it's not a fair representation of a live event. You don't feel it. You don't. It doesn't occur for you or to you the way a live event would. So even if you look at something on film or tape from the early 70s of his work, you don't get the impact of it. Uh, he's best known for something probably called Shoot, which is where he was actually shot in the arm by a friend. The, the, he's a provocateur, certainly. Uh, and he he really, really, at times in this piece, isn't very sympathetic. He is self-centered and people around him are befuddled by what he's doing. There's also another wonderful sequence in this show. And, and I think this entire cast works really well as an ensemble. There's a piece of art that he did that there is no videotape of. So what they do is they stage it and then every character breaks the fourth wall to give you their interpretation of what went on. And everyone has a completely different viewpoint. It's actually really fascinating. And I, I will say, if you've seen videos of Chris Burden, um, uh, Ben Hethcote plays Chris Burden, and he pretty much nails the vocalizations. It's sort of this kind of stammery, hesitant speech pattern. And, you know, he brings a physicality to the role that is at times threatening at times awkward at times sexual it's a really interesting betrayal uh his wife was played uh by jessica deshaw and she becomes part of the reflection for the audience of she's quite often befuddled by his motivations and what he's doing so she becomes a very good in for the audience as to she's asking the questions we're asking this show is really interesting provocative there are some beautiful images in it and I found this utterly fascinating, uh, a fascinating biographical play of a fascinating artist. It doesn't give you a lot of answers. And I think that's part of the point. And at the end of this, there is a very nice, quiet challenge to the audience to interpret and turn the artist into whatever we want to. And it's simple and it's beautiful and it's elegant. And I thought it was the perfect ending for this show uh, and very touching. So I, this, I have been thinking about this, Mike, for days. Uh, I keep going to images and conversations that were had in this show. And they're providing a lot of food for thought for myself about what I look for in haunts, in immersive theater, in, in, you know, I take in less visual art. I take in more theatrical art. But this has prompted that conversation in my own brain. And I, I think that's a, a high compliment that I can give this show and to this cast in particular who brought it to life. 
That's a great description. This was fascinating. So the next show that you went to, I didn't get to see. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> Do you know how insensitive that is? You're I've, being very politically incorrect. I've been waiting since I saw that on your list. We're, now, we're in the loopy part of the recording. <laughs> yes, we are. Uh, so, Mike, name the show that I went and saw. Eyes of the Blind. This is an interesting piece. Uh, it, it's sort of a mix of genres. Uh, primarily, it, it's a really fascinating drama, really heavy, heavy drama about a young woman dealing with the death of her sister, which quickly gets revealed that it was a suicide. And she has to go home to her father, who he has, she has not had contact with in several years, and help deal with the funeral and the aftermath of setting things right with her sister's life. What follows is a kind of a mix because it's part drama and the father is not a very sympathetic character. And actually the lead character of Amy uh, is not extremely sympathetic. So it's kind of hard to get into this show I found for myself personally. And then the show takes a very odd turn almost into straight full out horror. And I found it more interesting when it did that. And I will say that their presentation, it's a haunting. Let's, let's, let's start there. The sister, when she goes home, Amy starts to see her deceased sister, Cassie, appear to her. She thinks she's seeing a ghost. She doesn't know why. And that becomes the exercise of the piece is to the exploration and, and the questioning of the father of, what he knew and what he didn't know and when he knew it about, you know, his sister's life leading up to the death. So it's kind of this heavy drama and then it veers into horror, but there's also sort of a romance angle because it starts with a breakup and then there's a possible flirtation with another character. So it's this, this sort of mixed bag and it didn't always work for me when it worked best though, was toward the end when you start to realize and it's, it becomes very clear that the worst aspects of our lives are quite often the people around us or things that we can't get away from ourselves in reality. And it becomes more than a haunting. It becomes more than just a ghost. I will say, and it's funny, I, I had a conversation with someone who also saw this show just this afternoon, Mike, and we both pointed to the same moment of the show there's a moment where I found myself pushing against my chair and sliding up the back of my chair to get away from the stage. Wow. And it's the appearance of a demonic type character. And when it comes near the end of the show, it is so shocking and so effective that it was like, no, I do not want to deal with that right now. <laughs> And I had this moment where I just found myself really pushing back in my chair. And then they kind of break the fourth wall. And it was incredibly effective. And I don't want to go into exactly what the ending of the show was. But I found the the point that it makes in a conversation between Amy and her dad. When you realize how much of this family's issues was shaped by the hopes and dreams and frustrations of the father. 
that it becomes really, really sort of unpleasant and vile on some level that, that I felt the father was a selfish character and I won't say exactly what he did, but he sacrificed others for himself. And it just seemed so unnecessary and so sad when you get to the end of the show. It, 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 there's a sadness all through this piece and the horror just emphasizes the sadness. So I thought that was, even though the mix of genres didn't quite work for me, I loved their presentation of the haunt aspects and the supernatural aspects of this. I thought they were clever. I thought they were unique. I've never seen it done quite this way. That was fascinating for me. Even if the genres didn't mix well for me, I got to give credit for the staging of this and the cast sells it absolutely 100%. If you like horror, this was a good show for you to catch. So Russell, a, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about a show and when I went to the show, you had asked me to let you know if you should go see it. Yes. As soon as that show ended and I was able to actually <laughs> get my thoughts together and actually use my phone, I texted you saying, yes, you need to see this. Yes. Um, and I think it's very fitting that this closed out your Fringe Festival. Yeah, I agree. It was like they um, they added a show. Actually, I was not able to get a ticket when you had texted me, and I just kept watching. And then they sent out this email and said that they had added one more performance, and I grabbed a ticket immediately. Um, the show is When Skies Are Gray, and it deals with um, a woman who is in hospice care and the daughter who is visiting her regularly and dealing with the potential of her own mother passing away. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And if you heard the podcast from a couple weeks ago, then you know where I'm, where my mind is at right now, but uh, let's get Russell's perspective. Um, As you know, my father passed away several years ago and uh, my mother is, dealing with the effects of age and uh, had a recent health scare that I had to step away from my job for a few weeks and, and deal with that and try to help her. And she is improving. Absolutely. And um, she's seems to be getting back on track, but this show really hit me hard because what I found um, is I kept reflecting during the show. I had to fight to remain present because I kept reflecting on my dad. Um, and I kept thinking about my mom and where she's heading. And, you know, I don't mean that in a negative way, just a matter of fact, like we right. all age, we all have to deal with, you know, dude, I'm middle-aged now and I'm dealing with health changes. So, <laughs> and you know, I, I don't know your mom, but just from the conversations we've had and the things that you've told me about her personality, that was kind of one of the reasons I wanted you to see this because I thought it might be familiar in a way, you know? Yeah. Um, my mom can be a prickly pear sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I find as we both get older, that's becoming easier to deal with. Um, so I don't know what to say about this show. This 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 is not a traditional play. It's considered immersive theater. You do walk in and you surround the hospice bed area and you witness numerous visits between the daughter and the mother. It's not a strong 
story. It's more of snippets of real life as these visits occur. And I thought it was beautifully handled. And as you described, Mike, there are times when audience members can become nurses and are asked to do certain things to help with the patient for a moment or two. Were you a nurse? Yes, I was. Excellent. And um, yeah, I was actually uh, about halfway through the show. So I I had to deliver some news to the daughter, um, which was in itself incredibly affecting. Um, the audience that I was with, Mike, was completely devastated by this. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had forgotten. You told me that there were Kleenexes under the chairs. I had forgotten that. And the 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 audience member sitting next to me at one point <laughs> reached <laughs> under her chair and literally handed the Kleenex box to me. <laughs> and I was like, thank you very much for that. So, um, yeah, about a third of the way into the show, I just became really uncomfortable. It wasn't a pleasant experience at that point for me because of everything that was going on in my head. However, that being said, I think this is pretty special an achievement because it is a very cathartic experience. And in my audience, there were two people in particular who you have an opportunity near the end to sort of participate in a manner of, you know, paying your respects. Two people in my audience couldn't bring themselves to do that because they were so... Actually, no, I take that back. Three people in my audience couldn't bring themselves to do that because I think the familiarity of it or yeah, obviously this was hitting home for numerous people and there was a lot of crying near the end of my show. Uh, I will say this. I want to say that, you know, that description that I just gave sounds like a complete downer (laughs) (laughs) and there's more going on than that here because near the end of the show, there's also a wonderful sequence, a nonverbal sequence where you see the relationship between mother and daughter and they become physical reflections of each other and there's embraces and there's push and pull and give and take between the two characters that obviously represents their love and they're taking care of each other and they're being there and being this is key being supportive of each other and i thought that was when I personally was probably the most affected by the show was witnessing that sequence. This was special stuff. Oh yeah. And I, I don't know what else to say, Mike. I really don't. I'm, I'm really glad that my fringe festival ended with this because it's such an emotional piece. And you know, it's, it's, you know, I have, My family, I should say not me personally. My family does have a negative hospice experience in our past. So that was also good for me is to see hospice presented in this light. Um, So you mentioned there's a few people in the audience that didn't uh, go and pay their respects. Uh, At my show, I was (laughs) the only one and I, I felt like such a jerk. But, you know, it's with everything that's happened with me is definitely too soon. And Mm -hmm. I didn't, it it was weird because I had a thought in my head where like, no, I'm only, 
like I'm not going to cheapen my goodbye to my mom by saying it to in this this fictional mom if that makes sense like and I don't oh, yeah. mean that in any sort of disrespect to Ashley or, or her mother or anything but that's for me like that's what happened because I saw this only a few weeks after I went through saying goodbye you know and one of the things that I had talked about or wrote I forget which one was like this is a chance for people that never got that chance to say goodbye to someone they care about to say goodbye you know and you know I know unfortunately you didn't have that chance with your father so was this a way like to say goodbye to him i chose not to do that mm -hmm. um instead i chose to say something specifically aimed at my mother but as soon as i said it i realized that it reflected a conversation i did have with my dad before he passed away I, I don't know if that made any sense. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Uh, my yeah, my my dad and I, um, my dad was in the hospital and very sick, and I did see him. And then, uh, he he was supposed to survive for much longer, and um, I came back, went back to work, and then he suddenly took a huge turn for the worse, and I didn't make it back um, before he passed away. So, but what I said in the course of the show, and I was given the opportunity to, to, to say something to, you know, the, the mother in the show, I, I, I said something which was in, aimed more toward my mother who is still alive and, and, uh, you know, improving now from her recent health issues. Good. So, but I, it did reflect something that my father and I had discussed about taking care of mom. So, you know, I didn't direct it at my dad, but my dad was there, I guess would be the way to put that. Right on. Good. Thank you for asking. You got us into this mess, Mike. Now, how do we get out? <laughs> um, play some K-pop. That always cheers me up. That's my happy place. Uh, no, I know like, that's your happy place. I just... I. I'm really excited to see what comes next from, from Ashley um, because just this was so powerful. And, you know, even if I think even if I didn't go through what I've gone through and same with you, that this piece would have had the same effect. Yeah, probably from a different perspective, but mm -hmm. I think it would have hit as hard. But, you know, we both have very personal perspectives on this subject matter. Yeah. So it was fascinating for me to watch other audience members, so I guess when they started to be affected, because it was obviously certain things were triggering certain reactions in the audience. And some people were fine until the very end, and some people, like almost immediately, you know, tears began to flow. So I found that interesting to watch. And I also I was using it as a distraction to not deal with the subject matter myself. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, early on, I, I joked with you before we started recording that at one point I looked at my watch and it was only 20 minutes into the show. I was like, <laughs> what do you mean it's only 20 minutes? It feels like it's been hours. <laughs> and I don't mean that as a criticism. It just like it was hitting so close to home that I was very uncomfortable. And then... I kind of thought to myself, well, if I'm this uncomfortable, I need to be here. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad that that was the ending of my Fringe Festival for 2018.
All right. <laughs> so Fringe Fest is now <laughs> over. So yes, and actually, uh, we are recording this as the Fringe Fest awards ceremony is going on. So uh, I, we didn't mention any awards or anything like that. Uh, this podcast is going to come out after the final written reviews appear uh, online. And uh, all we can say is there's a lot of local theater in Los Angeles, not only during Fringe Festival season, uh, but Fringe Festival is sort of a gateway drug if you want to use it that way. It's a great chance to go out, explore, learn, listen, figure out what turns you on, meet new friends, find out what they're doing, figure out when you can see their shows. All of that happens during Fringe Festival in Hollywood during the month of June. So prepare now (laughs) (laughs) to take some time off. See a few shows. Save your pennies. Uh, And we have a few non-fringe shows coming up. So we'll be be recording again soon about non-fringe stuff. Yes, believe it or not, we do other stuff. And you know what? Actually, uh, I joked earlier that on my busiest day, uh, I did five fringe shows. On my other busiest day... I did four fringe shows in an escape room, which will be coming up on a podcast soon. Because you, Mike, you were there for the escape room. Yeah, and your humble brags. <laughs> on my busiest day, I did five fringe shows, and then my second, I did four in an escape room. I don't know if that's a brag or not, but <laughs> I'm Russell, so. and I cram more into. Never mind. I am. I I'm just going to stop saying that right <laughs> stop, now. Stop. Anyways, um, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you, you know can... I'm doing this to completely dis- distract myself from that. My life is empty, and my my soul is an empty void that needs filling. All right, that sounds like next year's fringe show. <laughs> And one more thing about Fringe, Mike, is I've already mentioned a few people that I kept running into at shows. We've mentioned on uh, podcasts in the past about Fringe. It really does become a really social event. And I want to thank, shout out to a couple of people who approached me, uh, particularly uh, Adam and Jonathan. Thank you so much for coming up and saying hi. And they've got something in the works, which I am excited to hear about when they get that ready. And uh, Leo from Finland uh thank you for coming over thank you for saying hi when you did at the show uh and i know you had a jam-packed weekend and i hope it was a blast thank you to everyone who said hello and and hello to all the new friends uh fringe is is such a good place to meet and greet and connect with old people and new people alike so thank you and uh, keep saying hello whenever you see mike or me out in the wild wait someone from finland went to fringe yep that listens to this podcast? Yep. What is going on? Yep. <laughs> That's amazing. Yep. Thanks for listening. <laughs> you sound so surprised that somebody would listen. I'm surprised that everything combined into like this birthday cake of amazingness. Yeah. So it was cool. So huh. yeah. Sweet. All right. You were saying. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, you can reach out to us at Russell at myhauntlife.com with two S's and two L's or Mike at myhauntlife.com with one I and one E. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. You can find us on the web at myhauntlife.com. Uh, follow us on all the social medias my at myhauntlife and leave us a message or a text on the haunt line. 515-HAUNT-LA. With all of that being said, I'm Mike. And I'm Russell. See ya. Get out. Mm. We're done for now. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Why is that stuck in my head?
The truth is, I never left you. All through my wild days, my mad existence. <clears throat> Please stop. <laughs> I kept my promise. Don't keep your distance. <laughs> Everybody. I will leave. <laughs>